My name is Gunner. I play in a local Austin band called The Big Gun Show, and I created this podcast to sit down with other songwriters, musicians, artists, and lovers of music to talk about their top five records that have inspired their lives and musical prowess. You want to understand your musical heroes better? Go no further. This is the place. Today, you've got the pleasure of having Chuck Prophet on the My Top Five Records podcast. A little bit about Chuck. After recording one EP and eight albums with rock group Green on Red, he released his first solo record, Brother Aldo on Fire Records. He has toured with Lucinda Williams as an opening act and eventually ended up on Yep Rock Records in 2007. He has appeared with his band on The Late Show with David Letterman, Last Call with Carson Daly. He has contributed to several Kelly Willis records and produced 2007's Translated from Love for Rio Disc. They co-wrote six of the album's tracks, and Chuck played guitar throughout it. In 2008, Prophet wrote all the songs, or co-wrote all the songs, on Alejandro Escovedo's um, Real Animal, to which he also uh, put forward vocals and guitars. He was also, in 1996, signed to Funzalo Music, BMG uh, Publishing, and spent much of 1997 in Nashville as a staff writer. Since then, he has gone on to have his compositions and co-writes recorded by many artists, including Alejandro Escovedo, Bruce Springsteen, Hart, Peter Wolf, Kim Ritchie, Archangels, Making the Motorcars, Chris Knight, one of my favorite songwriters, and Kelly Willis. And yeah, this is great and all, but what really blows me away about Chuck is his live performance. If you have not seen him, I cannot stress how much it will change your life. You'll leave smiling, you'll leave humming the melody to one of his songs, Promise. And he's not only an epic songwriter, he's also an entertainer. Like, I mean, he entertains the crowd. I like to compare his shows to other artists like Todd Snyder, Ray Wiley Hubbard, Paul Thorne, just just, just go see him. If you don't like it, I'll send you a check for whatever you paid. Uh, he's that good. And when this episode drops, uh, Chuck will be about to head out on his European tour that starts on April 13th of this year, 2013, and lasts for a few months. And before we get talking to Chuck, I, I do want to mention one thing. There are no advertisements on this podcast. I have a truckload of fun doing it, but it takes me at least 20 hours to research, listen, record, edit, and produce each episode. So if you're willing to help out, every dollar helps. You can support me over on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash mytop5records. Let's get to the conversation. But first, close your eyes. You're headed from the kitchen to the living room. What five records do you have? All right, ladies and gentlemen, today I am nothing less than thrilled to be talking to uh, one of my heroes in life. I uh, actually went on the Outlaw Country Cruise, and he played three times. And I saw every show. That was the only band on the on the on the cruise that I went to three times, all three times. So just, ladies and gentlemen, this is Chuck Prophet. Chuck, what's up, my man? Well, Gunter, I don't really know you that well, uh, but I can tell you right now, I, I like you already. <laughs> what's up? <laughs> well, is we're doing a podcast here. Uh, we're going to talk about some life changing records. Correct. This is and, it, man. Uh, and yeah. uh, you know. If you want me to pick one to go first, I'd be happy to do that. Well, first, let's go ahead and list them out. I've got you as J.J. Kales Naturally, Elvis from Elvis in Nashville, Big Star Sister Lovers were third, um, Dusty Springfield, Dusty Memphis, and London Calling. You've now made a record. This is The London Calling record has now been picked four times in the history of this podcast. So obviously, there you go. obviously, you've had some people that are very with it. <laughs> well, um, let me ask you this. Where are you taking these records? From the kitchen to the living room. I kitchen think. to the living room. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I like it. Okay. So let's go ahead and kick it off. There's a record you want to talk about, um, Elvis and Nashville first? Yeah. Well, you know, um, 
a good film critic when they list their top ten. Uh, a good film critic that who has any juice, you know, yeah. when they list their top ten records at the end of the year. Uh, Mick LaSalle here, for uh, the the film critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, he always puts one in that's a total long shot. You know, it's something right. that he saw by a new director uh, that is so wildly original that he does he thinks they deserve a little bit of a leg up you know what i mean okay and, uh, a new voice or something like that you know and um you know i understand that you know so it's not really a meritocracy it's about sometimes yeah you know these are not necessarily you know when i talk about the five best records you know i do want to mention this elvis record uh from elvis in nashville it's a part of an excellent uh, reissue series they're doing over there at Legacy Recordings, um, Sony Music. And what they've done is they've reissued a lot of uh, great Elvis stuff that may have been packaged in an odd way. You know, a lot of Elvis records were, you know, there was one record that that uh, they did a some kind of, um, I don't know, uh, some kind of co-promotion with singer sewing machines. If you bought a singer sewing okay. machine, you got an Elvis record. And, <laughs> right. Know? And they would just put tracks on it. They just had this library of tracks. And this was before the album era. You know, the, the Elvis stuff kind of predates Rolling Stone and these, you know, the grading system and, and, uh -huh. the, and, and an album being, you know, uh, uh, the 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 great American novel novel or whatever okay or novella if we're talking about an EP I guess so right. <laughs> uh, so they would just willy nilly grab Elvis tracks you know but but what they've done over at um, Legacy is when they reissue these records they 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 um, put them out uh, you know together when they were cut maybe even in order or, you know what Elvis could but anyway Elvis has is not really part of the pop culture landscape as much as he once was you know well probably, agreed. probably the most recognizable face in history you know marilyn monroe elvis presley mickey mouse i don't know um, my mom used to go and scream at him yeah well that's wonderful and so you know what do we really know about elvis um these records come out they just quickly disappear you know i don't know if it was reviewed in you know rolling stone or pitchfork or whatever but this particular record uh, is great because it's a bunch of tracks that Elvis cut in Nashville in 1970. Uh, he's surrounded by a band of stellar sidemen. And what they've done is they've, they've surgically removed all of the horns okay. and the strings and the background vocals. So when you listen to this record, it's a double album. I, I like the CD. I put it on random. Uh, it's like it really is like being in the control room um on an Elvis Presley session. Okay. Um Elvis is just mowing through a stack of songs. Uh the band is just jamming on the fly, making up intros, uh, making up endings, vamping. Uh Elvis is very much in control. Very sharp. He's cussing. Yeah. He's producing, he's laughing, he is just flying this thing you know and he is never less you know vocally never less than totally committed i don't think that he understood the concept of overdubbing and i don't and i think it was probably <laughs> for the best that nobody ever hipped him to it 
So, yeah. you know, Elvis, uh, an Elvis record is when Elvis is happy with his vocal. Next. Boom. You know? Boom. So there's a lot of clams and stuff, which is great to see, to hear these, uh, you know, slick sidemen just, you know, uh, um, on their toes, you know? So was this like the Nashville Cats playing with him or did he have his own band? Oh, no, this was a Nashville Cats. This would have been, um, let's see if I can find some credits here it would have been james burton on guitar eddie hinton on guitar unbelievable yeah um yeah. uh jerry uh kerrigan on piano uh david briggs um on organ charlie mccoy um charlie hodge so it's uh these uh nashville guys that we know from okay you know everything from patsy klein to you know Jerry Reed or whatever. It's 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 those cats, and they're fast and they're quick. And I think Elvis in a couple of days, you know, cut like fifty songs or something. You know, <laughs> but what a treat! You know that you can get this record and um, put it on, and it's like being in the studio with Elvis. So I love mishaps and things that go wrong on records. I don't believe they should be perfect. I think they should kind of explain what the band is doing at that time um you almost picked the stones record which i almost wish you would have because you'd be the first person to pick a stones record on this podcast um but i believe that there should be slop and there should be some it shouldn't be perfect and i think that's what you're saying about this record well the feels are perfect yeah you no know, the playing is could not be more perfect yeah sure you know uh they miss it you know somebody misses a change here and there but you know, when we talk about a record like Some Girls, um, you're talking about a record that's not really arranged, you know? And, and when I say, like, everybody in the band thinks that they're making it happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Keith's guitar part is happening. Ron Wood's doing a completely different guitar part. He's thinking he's making it happen. And, uh -huh. you know, Bill Wyman's making it happen. Everybody's making everybody, And they're not, no, they're only being themselves. And so you get... A lot of their personality but when you get into records that are arranged which i can dig as well you know like if you hear a burt Bacharach record everything on that record is burt mm -hmm. Bacharach's vision right so that's not rock and roll yeah. you know rock yeah. and roll is when you know rock and roll is when everybody's making it happen you know yeah. and and i can appreciate you know i see young bands i see somebody like the kings of leon i'm like this bass player he thinks he wrote the song you know <laughs> <He's just> like, <laughs> he has no <laughs> you know so uh, to hear these guys without the strings that are arranged by somebody or without mm -hmm. the horns that are arranged by somebody or the background vocals, you know, it's really just hearing them and all of their personalities, you know, especially Elvis. And that is a treat. And that, that's the kind of thing that I'm hungry for. Okay. You know, I, and, and that doesn't mean that I don't have time for Burt Bacharach records either, you know, but well, I, I find my, but I find myself hungry for that kind of stuff. And when this Elvis, uh, a Nashville record came along sometime during the pandemic, I believe, uh, came out in 2020. Um, it was just what, I, you know, it was just what I needed at the time. Still you a big Elvis fan? Enough, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's a difficult catalog, you know? A lot of that stuff it wasn't, is. you know, wasn't around, wasn't available, but, um, yeah, I, I can, I completely appreciate Elvis. Um, and, yeah. uh, and I think the record that really got the most attention is the Elvis in Memphis record, which with Chips Moleman and the American House Band, okay. 
We'll talk about them in a minute, I guess, when we talk about Dusty and Memphis. Okay, that's fair. Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, you know, I mean, again, I love Elvis. You know, he's the one that, quote, unquote, started rock and roll, if you want to call it that. I believe rock and roll is, in the words of Lester Bangs, more of an attitude than a style of music. So you can be rock and roll. I can be rock and roll. Willie's rock and roll. Waylon's rock and roll. So that's just how I look at it. I can work with that. Okay. There uh, are people. Let's, let's talk about some people who aren't rock and roll. Okay. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> let's see who's not rock and roll. Um, Dirk Bentley. Um, uh, it's some of the Nashville country stuff that's going on right now. Yeah. Um, well, it has attitude. It does. It's the wrong attitude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the I don't give a fuck attitude that I love. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, Stones are rock and roll Beatles. A- anybody who does says I don't really care. Just about don't what come from my guns. Yes, exactly. My, uh, yeah, my okay. knife or, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to JJ Kale. Okay. So before we get started here, I I need to tell you something. Um, in my I I don't really consider myself much of me of a musician. I consider myself a songwriter, and JJ Kale is one of my primo heroes when it comes to songwriting. He might even be my biggest hero. And I remember when I first got this record, naturally that I had to immediately, after I listened to it twice, I had to immediately go back up to the store and buy three more J.J. Kale albums. One of them was Troubadour. I don't remember the other two. Uh, but had to come, uh, this was CD days, so no vinyl at that point, but had to come. And then I could get actually get to listen to him. So um, he's so badass that Neil Young said, of all the players I've ever heard, it's got to be Hendrix and J.J. Kale who are the best electric guitar players. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's only part of who he is, you okay. know. Um, I mean, he's a he he took at that point in time, you know. Um, he was really unique in that he took the record making process, you know, to an art form. I don't know if he did it consciously or unconsciously, you know. But mm-hmm. um. There's something about that first J.J. Kale record, naturally, that feels like an old friend. You know, he feels like, oh, I, you know, he feels like you've heard it before. Also, I should mention it's only 27 minutes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's tiny. And so so uh, he had an attitude that if, that if he recorded those songs as if they were demos, then people that heard them felt that they could expand on them and personalize them and add, to, them, add to the recipe. And, of course, that got us... You know, uh, they call me the breeze, which was a big hit for Leonard Skinner. It was. Um, what else on that? What else on that record became hits for other people? Actually, it was after midnight was the big one. But is that off? The, yeah, of course that's unnatural. Yeah, after midnight is insanely big. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we'll go ahead and kick off with a quiz question here. You ready for this one, Chuck? Okay. What kind of drums were used in the recording for the intro to After Midnight? Was it A, the first edition of Roland Electric Drums? Was it B, a drum machine, or C, a vintage Ludwig four-piece kit? I don't know. The drum machine was a maestro rhythm king. I can tell you that. Okay. Drum Damn machine was, yeah. Thank you. There you go. Good job. So, yeah, uh, what J.J. Kale says, when we did the first album, most people didn't realize that it was an electric drum machine or that there was ever such a thing. I didn't reuse a real drummer because I had no money because so I cut Crazy Mama and Call Me the Breeze and Carl Radle came in and played bass and Matt Gaden played slide on Crazy Mama. Then Audie hurt some musicians in a real hired some musicians in a real studio and we cut the other eight songs naturally. Yeah. 
and I think one of the things that makes the record so unique is that JJ was also an engineer. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, he put his hands on the faders and the guitars are kind of quiet. Yep. And the vocal, of course, is kind of quiet as well, but he would double it. And so, like I say, if, if an engineer mixes your record, that's his vision of the yep. way it should sound. You know what I mean? Which is great because without those engineers, you know, um, a lot of people would have just been over their heads you know and and these balance engineers you know are also artists but i think jj had a way of turning the mix kind of inside out the things that are normally loud or quiet the things that are normally quiet are loud yep and he's he's whispering but it's up and i think he doubles his vocal quite a bit and it's just such an incredibly listenable record also the reason i have a personal relationship to it is that um it was one of the only records that Green on Red could agree on, you know. Huh. So Dan Stewart and I, like early when we were traveling together, we we um had one of those early CD players and some speakers, and we would just kind of put it on repeat in the dark in our hotel room. <laughs> and uh, and I remember those times, you know, fondly. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was released in '71. I know that he didn't even know that um, After Midnight had come out uh, or Clapton recorded until he heard it, heard it on the radio. So yeah, I've, I, I, yeah, I've heard that, uh, you know, and I think he went on to say that at that point he knew enough about the music business to know that he wasn't going to have to work for a little while. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a good story. Now, I saw J.J. Kale play one time with uh, Spooner Oldham and, um, uh, Jimmy Carstein, a bunch of the cats, you know, uh, at the Great American Music Hall, and I went with my friend Rolly Sally and 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 my wife Stephanie Finch, and and um, we literally had a moment like, uh, you know, which one's JJ? Because <laughs> they were just, <laughs> just kind of up there in the dark, you know, and it was hard to tell where it was come, where the music was coming from. We stood along that back wall, you know, and and um, <laughs> at the Great American Music Hall, and it was such an inspired show that um, I had worked with Spooner Oldham before. He had played on a Green on Red record, and uh, we went and said hi to him. And I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I was working on my first solo record, which was kind of a homemade record uh, called Brother Aldo, um, you know, with a budget of like. I think five hundred dollars or whatever, and I said Huge to budget. I said to Spooner, uh, "You got to play on my record, man, and we'll go to the studio." And we did. We went to the studio like one in the morning, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> around Friday, and, and he played on a song, you know, and and uh, he danced a little jig, and and Spooner was just lovely, you know, and and uh, yeah, it was just such a wonderful night seeing JJ Kale. Nice, um, nice. but uh, yeah, he really elevated at that what was going on at that time. I, I don't know that. Maybe the Beatles, of course, but not these Nashville guys. You know, he he took the whole process of recording songs and he elevated it to a, a, a an art form. You know, yeah. son- sonically as well as musically. And um, you know, when you hear that record, um, it's so unique in, in that respect. Yeah. But the ingredients are the same. You know, yeah, no, no I agree. Bass, bass player, you know. Maestro Rhythm King, um, you know, 
and and of course JJ's such an incredibly slinky guitar player, but he also gives room to other people. Like, did you mention Mac? Yeah. Um, Mac, uh, Gaiden. I did, I did not. Yeah. You know, you mentioned him at the beginning when JJ said, "I went in the studio with okay, the drum machine yeah. and Mac." Uh, Mac, Mac Gaiden. Mac Gaiden, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, Mac, he's the one that plays. Wow, you know, he plays those Wawa guitars. Oh, okay. Slide Wawa on Crazy Mama and stuff. And Mac is also an incredible songwriter uh, himself, and he's still out there. I know friends who have worked with him or hire him. Brad Jones uh, in Nashville. Okay. Uh, knows Mac, and um, uh, yeah, and and so JJ is as as great as he is and was he. He also, uh, you know, gave voice to other guitar players, and you know, you, you never know who's taking the breaks. Art of the song, serve the song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he's just—he's so laid back. I feel like that, may, maybe to a fault. Um, but you know, some—I mean, I'm a total rocker, and you know, I don't. It this album is, in my opinion, it hits every genre of people out there because it just—it connects with you. And I, I, it's it's soothing. It's 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 a great album to listen to with your morning coffee. Uh, and I'm I'm pissed because I can't put him in my top five records. Right. Well, well, I'll tell you. You know, I thought when when Burt Bacharach died, I, I wrote something on Instagram. I said I thought Burt Bacharach invented the major seventh chord. <laughs> now, <laughs> but I could say the same thing for J.J. Kale. Uh, on Magnolia, which is just such a beautiful, uh -huh. beautiful track. Yeah. With those major seven chords. And, um, I don't know. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so Rolling Stone, uh, reviewed the album in 72 and John Landau said this quiet and leisurely album from an excellent guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter is a charmer. JJ Kale has a unique approach to funk blues and country and it all involves taking things that is just as relaxed, relaxed and mellow as pace as the human metabolism will allow. Here it results in one of the most enjoyable debut albums heard in some time. Yeah. But it's not, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, it's also a dance record. Mm -hmm. It's just got incredible feel. It's nothing, nothing that's, maudlin about it. That's what I'm saying. It. Is that, nothing maudlin about it. I guess he mentions that. He's, he says, you know, it's mellow, funk. You know, mellow funk. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, so th I mean, I've, there, there's some great reviews on this. You know, all music says Kale effortlessly captured a lazy rolling boogie that contradicted all the commercial styles of boogie blues and country and rock at that time. Hypercritic said slow, raw, and unpretentious naturally can can count among its more substantial virtues. Its capacity to put the listener in a specific mood every time it's played, and that I think that kind of hits it. Yeah, that goes a long way. Right on. What else do you have to say about J.J. Keller, this album? Because, I mean, he, he has kicked out some of the most legendary songs that everybody knows. Well, one of the things that's kind of interesting about J.J. Keller is I was talking to Andrew Lauder, who, uh, I don't know, Andrew brought Credence to England, and he's an A&R mm -hmm. guy and, uh, uh, you know, worked with you know all kinds of people, the Flaming Groovies. And, and uh, you know, I met him in England, and we were talking about... Uh, he had a, a label that, that put out some... Uh, later J.J. Kale records. I can't remember the name of the label. And he said that he went over to J.J.'s place and flew to the States to meet up with J.J. and talk about his new record. And and um, J.J. played him some stuff. And then and then J.J. played him some other stuff. He played him uh, a Van Halen record and um, something else that was uh, 
really off the wall and jj said yeah i really like the the uh, engineering on this record and uh so you know you never know where J, you know you never know where jj kale was getting his inspiration right agreed well, i mean he's from oklahoma moved out to work with leon russell as an engineer you know it well, came a at a good time that's a good point because oklahoma it, it, you know is it any wonder that he sounds like he's from another planet yeah, well, I mean, I, because I Oklahoma that. may as well be another planet. <laughs> uh, yes, it it might be. I mean, I'm from Texas, and we always have the joke, you know, why doesn't Texas fall in the sea? Because Oklahoma sucks. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I I'm glad you picked this one. Um, and again, one of my heroes. Uh, and then if we move on to Big Star, I've got to say. You made me go back into a rabbit hole when I listened to this record uh, for Big Star because I've always loved their first album. Uh, it's got, what, 13 and what else? 13 in the street, that kind of stuff. Um, and Of then, course. So why this record as opposed to one of their other ones? Well, it's a completely different record, you know. It is. Um. I mean, I think that the, you know, the first couple records are uh, really, in a lot of ways, they're Chris Bell records too, you know? Yep. I think that it was really later that Alex and Jim Dickinson mm -hmm. began to work together with John Fry very much, you know, uh, behind the board and in Alex's corner. Uh, and... Alex was really free to make this abstract expressionist masterpiece, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's like, it's, it's unlike anything else, you know? And it's so, it's so beautiful. Um, also, there's a lot of Alex there and there's a lot of personal expression, you know? And I think uh, the earlier Big Star Records, they were sort of writing Beatles songs and, you know, doing these exercises. Um, but... By the time this record came around, a lot of people have described Alex as being bitter, uh, um, yes. angry. And, you know, I wouldn't listen to this record as much as I did if I felt that any of, if I heard any bitterness or anger. You know, I don't, you know, that doesn't do it for me. Um, okay. So, so I, what I hear is just beautiful performances, beautiful songs. Um, and later, you know, demos came out and you could hear how together those songs actually were. Mm -hmm. Now, the performances here are pretty loose and wild and, and, and free and they, they, they sound kind of off the cuff. But there's nothing um, compositionally. Uh, there's no compositional half measures here. You know, it's uh, um, a lot like another record we we had talked about tonight's the night by Neil Young. It's like the performances might be leaning over a little bit, yeah, but the but compositionally, there's so much beauty involved, you know. Yeah, I think there's a misconception that you can just kind of go in the studio and leave in the mistakes. Oh, well, you know, depends. You gotta know which ones. You gotta know which, you know ones, which ones to leave <laughs> in. If you're, you know, if you're if you're a painter, you know, you gotta know which ones. I, I like music that, that where people use a ruler. I like music where there's squiggly lines. Most of the music I like has both those things. There you go. You know, yeah. and um, that's the way I feel about Sister Lovers. It's really a perfect balance of that stuff, you know. And 
it's a really soulful record. It's actually, and it's also kind of sophisticated. And I think what really works is this marriage of the street and the regal. You know, there's just no middle brow on the record. There's a lot of kind of, you know, there's stuff on the on Radio City Big Star that kind of sounds a little bit like the James Gang or something. Uh -huh. Yeah. But but there's nothing like that on this record. And and I think we should also give a shout out to Carl Marsh who uh is the excellent arranger and did the string charts uh for this record. Uh he also played oboe, I believe. I think Carl Marsh is still out there. I was on I was in Nashville one time walking down a hallway and and I turned and I, I looked through this glass and there was a an orchestra and I said, What's that? And the guy said, Oh I think Carl Marsh has a session today and I said, Carl wow. Marsh I mean, the big star guy, what a trip, you know? So I, I believe he's still out there. He's a gifted uh, uh, string arranger, and uh, he was, you know, just a young dude when he um, was brought in for Sister Lovers. So uh, it's, you know, it, it's kind of a confusing record, too, because I think the first version I had was on PVC Records, which came out somewhere on the East Coast, and that had a sequence, and it had a certain amount of songs in a certain order. Then, uh -huh. then... In the 80s or 90s or whatever, Ryko Disc reissued it, and they had their own uh, running order, uh, and they and um, it was really hard to tell. But you know, Jim Dickinson, who was a teacher to me, who I worked on a lot of projects with, he gave me the test pressing for that record. Okay, and and so that was the sequence that they agreed when they were all sitting there. When they were right. done mixing, you know, you take a razor blade and, and on the quarter inch, you know, you start to cut in the songs in the mm -hmm. order that you in the order that you want them. So I don't even know what that order is, but that's the record that I know in my head, you know. Well, that was released. So they started they started recording in '74 at Arlen's. I mean, at uh, in Arden Studios in Memphis, which is where the band's from. Um, and then they did some. They did like a, a white press label, whatever testing of it and they didn't really like it so it didn't get really actually released on pvc records until 78 who didn't like it uh it was basically less than commercially desired by the record label which label a, um no 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 i mean they, they 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 made back then they didn't really have cassettes like we did later they made white labels so that they could shop it right you know and so the the, the story i got and and John Fry, you know, kind of backed me up on this, was that they pressed up some of these white label LPs so that they could go out and get a deal for the record, maybe get some money for it or whatever, because right. this was on spec, you know. This was all recorded for free at Arden. And what they did was they sprang for Jim Dickinson. They got him a tailored suit, and they got him a, and they got him a <laughs> scarf. They got him a scarf. And Jim Dickinson, you know, he knew, he knew um, uh, people. He had produced uh, Ry Cooter. Um, you know, uh, he, he knew, um, uh, Lenny Warnaker. And so I guess Dickinson went out to LA and had some meetings and played it for some people. And one of the, the responses that, that Jim used to take uh, great pride in was that, uh, Jerry Wexler called him and uh -huh. said, and who, who, uh, had made many records, Dickinson had made many records with Jerry Wexler when Dickinson was in the Dixie Flyers down in, uh, Florida, uh, and 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 he Wexler called Jim and said, uh, "Jim, baby, uh, 
I gotta tell you, this music that you sent me—it's making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> well, we get to talk about Jerry later when we talk about Dusty. And the reason I know that about the scarf and everything was that when Dickinson was producing Green on Red, one day he showed up to a session, and it—it it was just didn't—it seemed odd that he was wearing this colorful scarf. And I was like, "Hey, man, what's what's the deal with the scarf, Jim? And he's like, well, it's all I've got to show for sister lovers. <laughs> <laughs> so I think later it was, it was, you know, it took probably took four years for it to come out, but it came out yeah. through one, one label or another. And I think it also came out on a European label, you know, but um, yeah, it was just uh, ahead of its time. I mean, there's a lot that's been written about it now. You know, one thing I remember was that somewhere, I, I would say about 2006, um, my band Green on Red got back together and we played the Ascana Festival, I think, in Spain. Okay. And uh, the Stooges were on the bill. The New York nice. Dolls were on the bill. Um, and Big Star with uh, the Posies guys were on the bill. And uh, they had a new, Big Star had a new record out at the time. And I remember Alex introduced a song and said, this is a, he said, this is a song off our new record. People hate it. He said, uh, <laughs> he said the critics say that it's horrible, but don't worry, folks. In thirty years, you'll love it. But, <laughs> it's kind of like this. What this album was did, you know? Exactly. I mean, my thoughts about it is, you know, I, I believe this is another kind of what we we're talking about earlier is, you know, imperfection. Uh, I hear like a British vocal influence. I hear Heavy Stones, Lou Reed kind of influence as well. You know, I hear the Beatles in there too. Um, and I feel that, that Alex's vocal on this on in this particular band is just essential. Yeah, and th there's a few things in terms of what makes this record unique. I always thought it was unique because Alex would play guitar and cut the tracks with Jody Stevens, and I, they would just cut the two of them. Yep. And um, and the bass was often so like they were just kind of holding on to each other, you know. Mm -hmm. And they were playing to each other and and dancing, you know, tight. But um, the bass was always overdubbed, and there are several bass players, so you get a lot of that. Gung, 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 gung. There's like really great bass playing going on that that keeps things driving, and uh, and it's it's unusual, you know. Yeah, no doubt. It's unusual that the bass kind of takes lead. Yes. Okay, I can hear that. I can. Yeah. You know. I mean, the the strings are so epic. Um, you know, I love the off some of the offbeat stuff that they do and Blue Moon, the stand-up bass. You can hear that him hitting the fretboard is is almost like a rhythm instrument. I love the mix as well. I love, you know, it was John Fry's Swan Song, you know. John Fry built Arden Studios in his mother's sewing room and uh they built it built it into this business that that uh, you know, ended up doing a lot of work for Stax Records and ended up, you know, being the home for you know, I don't know, you know, ZZ Top and Amy Grant and, you know, but in the 70s, you know, the beautiful thing was that John Fry um, opened it up to some kids, you know, and and gave them the keys. Uh, yeah. For those first two big star records, you know, he was there when they cut the basic tracks, but when they started doing the harmonies and the overdubs and the hand claps and the org, you know, he just gave them keys and he taught them to engineer. Alex could engineer, Chris Bale could engineer. You know, Jody Stevens manages the studio to this day. So, you know, he he's the hero really uh, behind Big Star in my mind and that he created this opportunity for, um, you know, for Alex Chilton and Chris Bell and Jody Stevens to experiment 
and uh, he, you know, he believed in them, and, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, and and that, and that, that enabled them to believe in themselves, you know. And you can hear it, you know, Alex. He, you know, Alex is taking chances on this record, and yeah. it's his, it's his vision. And you know, it would be really hard to get a record like that made in the seventies, because there's just too many rules. You know, <laughs> you just can't do that in a studio. Yeah. You know? But uh, Jim Dickinson was very much in Alex's corner. And John Fry behind the board. It was probably the last record that John Fry engineered. I think it. Okay. I think it broke his heart. You know, when Green on Red started recording um, at Arden in like you know '86 or '87, you know they didn't have any pictures of Big Star on the walls. It was a sad. You know, there was a there was this sort of sadness around uh, the the Big Star project. You know, for one, uh, you know it failed commercially. It did. And uh, Kate McCult album though, and Chris. Well, yeah, but you know these guys are running a business, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I get they're it. running a fanzine, you know. <laughs> you, know <what laughs> I mean? it's like, you know what I mean? And 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 Chris Bell died under some circumstances that you know weren't great, and and I mm-hmm. think that it was a sad, you know. And it was only later that bands started to talk about this rec- these records, and and it it um, you know became a source of pride for them. But, yeah. But there wasn't a lot of that going on when uh, Green on Red was recording at Arden. What do you think about this being more of an Alex Chilt uh, record than a Big Star record? That's well, fine. I don't, you know, call it what you want. If you already got the bin that says Big Star, stick it in there. You know, I don't. I hear you. I'm not, I'm not here to, you know. I yeah. Don't know about I mean, I don't know. You got to talk to a marketing person. Yeah, well, Alex said, Jody and I were hanging together as uh, as a unit still, but we didn't see it as a big star record. We never saw it as a big star record. Yeah, it was a marketing decision when the record was sold in whatever year it was sold. And they didn't ask me anything about it. They never have asked me anything about it. So, Well, there you go. Yeah, that's what, that, that's what he thinks. You think um, big star pioneered power pop? No, I think all kinds of people were doing it in different parts of the world. You know, I think there were people that, what was going on at the time? You know, Rick Wakeman. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's wearing a cape and he lives in a, like a hobbit up in a <laughs> castle or something. I mean, is that what's Very going deep. on? You know, I mean, that that didn't appeal to people that that grew up on Revolver and and uh, the Who and and you know, there were always people in these different corners of the country doing stuff. Whether it was the Raspberries in Cleveland or whether it was the Rubenus in Berkeley or Big Star in Memphis or you know. Um, all kinds of bands in LA who, you know, I don't know, the quick and there were always bands that were that that hung on to those values that, you know, that they got from the British invasion and and uh, you know, short tight songs, you know. So I I don't know that Big Star invented anything really. I mean, um they right were on. They were somewhat in a vacuum, you know, because they were in Memphis, which was all about soul music and and uh, R and B, and uh, you know they were these white kids that, you know, yeah, were, were strung out on the Beatles, and you know Alex had done his time. He'd been in the Box Tops. He was produced by Dan Penn. He was a, you know, a kind of an R and B singer himself. You know, yeah. Um, and um you know there's a lot of birds in there there's, there's all kinds of stuff you know 
Now, Sput Music said it's a gorgeous, tortured, fragmented, near concept record that just never lo loses the brilliant luster instilled in its genius creator and unsung hero producer, Jim Dickinson. So please pay money for this record for the sake of every band that never gets attention they deserve. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Right on. Well, um, I can see how this record uh, has influenced your style. I mean, it's it's definitely it's it's got a little 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 shot of, shot of Chuck in it. Well, I gotta tell you, you know, in 1986, Green on Red had a record on MTV, a song called "Time Ain't Nothing." We were we were signed to Polygram. Uh, you know, we were touring with two vehicles, um, and um, I remember pulling into the 688 Club in Atlanta, doing our sound check and sitting around, and when this uh, Buick pulled into the gravel lot and these three guys got out and they got a drum set out of the trunk of this Oldsmobile and didn't have any cases and and this guy grabbed a super reverb and set it on the stage and and they were kind of you know plugging in and they were they were opening the show and and uh yeah and and, and that was Alex Chilton you know uh, yeah Renee, Renee Coleman and Doug Garrison a little three-piece that Alex had and um you know alex put his harmonica rack on and he and he tuned to his harmonica tuned his guitar to his harmonica <laughs> and uh and 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 what i remember uh really well was that uh he took his shirt off he had several shirts on and he took his button shirt off and he um reached into the back of his amp and he pulled out his gig shirt right <laughs> back of the amp that's <laughs> yeah. a suitcase and um you know, I don't know who my heroes were then, you know, we talk about the Stones or whatever, but, uh, yeah. you know, I remember Alex playing September Girls, and that may have been the first time I'd ever heard that song, was literally coming out of that, he was playing that Mose Rider or Telecaster, and it literally came out of that super reverb, you know, okay. and so I was pretty smitten with Alex, and, uh, you know, he, in many ways, he's, you know, he's, he's always been my hero. And you know, nice. he's cool. Uh, he is cool. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Okay. And, and also, you know, I mean, um, I I like his uh, appreciation of the American Songbook. You know, yeah. And uh, you know, he's he's turned me on to a lot of music. Well, that's a big star. Let's talk about Dusty in Memphis. Um, what I consider to be a prime example of what people call blue-eyed soul. She's a yeah, uh, sure. Hails from England. This is her fifth studio album. It was released in 69. Uh, made it to the Grammy Hall of Fame in, t in, fame in 2001. Sold poorly upon its uh, release, uh, even though it had a very, very big top 10 hit over the UK. Son of a preacher, man. Uh, and I love how the uh, in 2020, the album was selected by the Library of Congress. And in their press release, they said, Over time, Dusty and Memphis grew to stature, become widely recognized as an important album by a woman in the rock era. So talk to me. Well, there's this, this BBC documentary um, I saw one time where um, Dusty talks about, you know, she was in the Springfields and, you know, uh -huh. she had some hits and everything in England. And I think she talks about her first trip to New York and uh, she passed by a record store on Broadway and she heard uh, this soul music. I think it was the Exciters. Um, okay. 
singing I know something about love you know you gotta want it bad and she heard that coming out of a doorway or whatever and it just stopped her in her tracks and you know that was really when she discovered this you know American soul music Mm -hmm. and had a kind of a she describes it as a you know moment of clarity or a flash of light you know and 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 she knew from that point on that's what she wanted to do you know and she at the time she was headed towards Nashville to record a record with the Springfields and uh, I guess it took a while for her um, to get where she wanted to go. But, um, you know, she eventually got there with this record. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, it's a different experience for her. She's playing with these Nashville Cats. Or excuse me, the, uh, yeah, the Nash- I think they were playing with the Nashville Cats. Um, but she basically insisted. She said, okay, I'll come over and record this. But, Jerry, you have to, you have to be on it. You have to basically produce this. And well, then, I mean, I mean, the fact that that Jerry Wexler had produced that great Aretha stuff probably wasn't lost on Dusty, you know. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But you know, Dusty Springfield is one of those uh, singers that, while while she may have been born a world away from, you know, Alabama, she had this innate feel and this kind of innate intelligence and she never really sang like soul cliches. She was always herself, you know? Um, yeah. And, and kind of took a, a sophisticated approach to singing that uh, was understated and, and, and just very cool. Uh, you know, much like Ray Charles or Peggy Lee or whoever, you know? Yeah. I mean, she's I, very unique. You know, I, 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 the guy from the pet shop boys, um, Mm-hmm. Neil Tennant said that um, when they brought her in, he said, you got to understand, Dusty doesn't just sing. You know, she doesn't just record her vocal. She, whatever she does, she dustifies, you know. She dustifies. Makes it, she, she makes everything that she, everything she does, everything she touches, she, turn, she turns it into a Dusty Springfield record. There you go. Uh, yeah, well, I, I read that Wexler was having a little challenge because he brought her all these songs and, um, in his book, Rhythm and Blues, he said uh, he brought her all these songs and she approved exactly zero. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, I like that about her. Yeah. But uh, he ended up picking them and she ended up doing them. And, you know, again, didn't take off commercially, but now it's become just like this ultimately, in my opinion, cult record. Well, it's a, I, I don't know why it didn't, you know, I mean, why it fell out of print or how those things work, you know, but. Um, who cares? You know, I mean, uh, it's a it's a white soul symphony, and it's a very unusual. You know, I mean, it's not they're not all Eddie Hinton songs. You know, Windmills of mm-hmm. My Mind are almost like show tunes. You know, along with the Carol King songs. Um, but in the end, I mean, it's a pretty flawless batch of songs. You know, and and uh. uh you know, I understand that they agonized over the the songs. Some people said there were as many as a hundred songs that uh, were poured from beaker to beaker before they came up with the batch that eventually made up the record. You know, and and so many things about the record work. Also, we should give in a special uh, mention to Tom Dowd, who was behind the board on that. I would like to actually talk about that as well. That guy has engineered for a, a very impressive cast of artists. Um. If I wanted to name a few for you, I could say Eddie Money, Bee Gees, Eric Clapton, Leonard Skinner, Derek and the Dominoes, Rod Stewart, the Allman Brothers Band, 
Jay Giles, Band Meatloaf, Sonny Cher, Willie Nelson, Diana Ross, Eagles, Kenny Loggins. It just goes on. Yeah, interesting guy. You know, there's a documentary on him out there. Uh, he was with Jerry Wexler from the very beginning, you know, when they would hang one microphone. Wow, you know, yeah. And record, and record Ruth Brown. And if the horns were too loud, they would just tell them to back up, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, you know, so, yeah, I mean, he was there uh, uh, from the beginning and really was there for the advent of multi-track recording and all that stuff. You know, he's just one of those guys. Yeah, he's and he's worked with. I mean, so so many people. So uh, I I I think that that originally they talked about doing this record in Muscle Shoals, uh, where they did the too. dusty where they did the dusty stuff. But I I think Dusty was afraid that that would tip the scales a little uh, too far towards country, or maybe she was you know didn't want to walk in Aretha's uh, footsteps, you know. Yeah, um, where they did the Maritha stuff. But um, but she was also, you know, um, a pretty well-known student of American R&B and, and soul and knew her way around it and that she was ready to, to um, you know, get down home. But American Studios, where they ended up recording with Chips Moment, was kind of a legendary place, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, Elvis allegedly, you know, legendarily, when he came in there to record those sessions with Indigeno and Kentucky Rain and everything. Yeah. That, that that there was like a rat running a, 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 along the top of the rafters and they were like you can't be serious yeah. you call this a studio <laughs> you know and that's where they cut it you know and that's uh where uh uh they 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 cut dusty in memphis and uh doesn't mean that she didn't bring like two hairdressers with her but of course yeah you gotta be looking <laughs> she, had to, she had to have her hair blow dried like daily yeah almost like tammy wynette right absolutely um, okay here's a quiz question for you um, what band did Dusty recommend and Atlantic Records to sign before for their first record? Was it A. Led Zeppelin, B. The Clash, or C. The Kinks? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. There's a great clip of her and Jimi Hendrix, though. Yeah, help me out. Uh, yeah, so it was Led Zeppelin. So during the Memphis sessions in basically '68, Led Zeppelin came out with their first record in '69. Uh, Springfield suggested the head of it analytic analytic uh atlantic records that they should sign the newly formed led zeppelin group she knew the bass player john paul jones he had backed her in some shows and stuff like that and they gave her i mean basically didn't really even listen to the band or the lp or anything like that they just basically gave him a 150 thousand dollar advance uh-huh so uh, I, th I think that's pretty cool that she's going to go ahead and recommend led zeppelin because i mean they're they're up there in my book too yeah they did some stuff they're right yeah. up there with <laughs> big star right up there with <laughs> yeah. big star i guess yeah it's not as good maybe, as Big Star, maybe, but, you know. Robert Christigal said that he called it a pop standard classic, predicting his in 1973 Newsday article, the record will sell for years because its admirers need replacement copies, and it's the perfect instance of how production teams should work. Well, that's interesting he would say that because I think I've owned five or six copies of it. You know, like <laughs> you I, had the, I had the original record, then I had the CD, and then they reissued the CD. It was supposed to be better, and they they tacked some outtakes on there. I didn't like that. Right. I didn't like the outtakes, you know. I wanted to hear the record the way they imagined it, you know, and so then that sucked. And then I, and then it was reissued again. I could tell you one thing about all these reissues, um, and I'd be happy to be corrected, but I think they're all off of safety or something because as soon as you drop the needle – as soon as you put the CD on, there is so much hiss. There's so much tape hiss. It's huh. got to be like like a, a third generation copy. 
Okay. Luckily, they didn't filter all of it out through mastering because all that, you know, those frequencies is also where her breath is. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt breathy singer, you know, that's what the, the good mastering guys do. They really tune into the vocal, you know. I read a review that said, Time, though, has worked wonders for both Dusty and the album's legacy. It represents a monument for her willingness to take risks despite her own anxieties and fears. It set a template for the whole new soul era and stands as Dusty Springsfield's greatest moment. Yeah, well, you know, um, it got her away from what I was talking about earlier, arrangements, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the records that she did in England were, you know, highly arranged, but, you know, the, the American house band, uh, Reggie Young and Tommy Cogville and Gene Chrisman and those guys, um, you know, they just heard the song and they just kind of maybe wrote a couple chord charts and they would just work it out, Yeah, you know, and you get those great you know, you get those great licks like, oh, hold on. All that great Reggie Young stuff, you know, you get, you know. You know what I have? Oh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, I like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, however it goes. Yeah. Um, Reggie Young, such an incredible guitar player. I um, did a record with Al Cooper one time, and I said, oh, oh, I said, you worked with Reggie Young. Yeah, he's on so many of my favorite records. He goes, he goes the most in tune <laughs> guitar player I've ever worked with. Interesting observation. The most in tune. in tune. Yeah, that's Reggie Young playing the sitar on Cry Like a Baby. That's Reggie Young playing the sitar on uh country boy will survive really yeah see there tommy you something know. new today reggie young yeah well, let's move on to uh the clash um have you ever listened to stay free it's a podcast uh no. it's a, it's chuck d is the the oh yeah, yeah 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 yeah. I, I i seem to remember something like that yeah i went out and tried to find it i it was a six six piece episode podcast and it was chuck d talking about the telling the story of the clash it was awesome right i remember you can this. find it i tried to find right. it. i want to go download it and, and send it to everybody that's picking the clash but it, it's epic um and now you have actually set a record here today chuck by making this the fourth time that this has been picked so this is the only record that's been picked four times beautiful i'm happy to i'm happy to uh you know be in such <laughs> such great company i assume <laughs> i assume i'm in great company yes definitely uh, bad company did not make the top five today uh, did not make the top five no correct. Well, first bad company record that was close oh bad company sorry <laughs> uh, uh yeah many consider this the greatest double album of all times apparently you've picked another one which is the, the elvis in memphis or uh, in nashville yeah i don't know if that's you know if we could call that a you know it's that's like a reissue that is just a bunch of tracks but i i told you that i gotta give it up for the underdog it's the way i'm wired and i feel like that's a record that that um would get past people if i didn't yeah. uh if i didn't uh you know be a little bit of a cheerleader for it there you go right i don't on. even know if it qualifies as an album it's a collection of tracks you know fair enough fair enough you know you could call it a best of if you wanted to whatever something like that um yeah so this was released in 79 in the uk uh consistently wrecks i mean this is this is a legendary album there's no doubt about it uh when did you first hear this record i got a cassette of it from rasputin 
records on Contra Costa Boulevard and Pleasant Hill. Okay. And it was used. <laughs> right. And uh, and I and the I had a boom box. I, I had a boom box, you know, when I was sixteen and I just listened to it constantly. That's it, you know. Nice. Also, you know, um Train in Vain was a hit on the radio. Uh -huh. On the A on the AM radio. On the AM, yeah. Yeah. Uh here in San Francisco, uh case um God, what was the station? KFRC, yeah. <laughs> KFRC right. used to play that, play all the time. And I, um, you know, I just love the record and everything about it. You know, I, I got to say, you know, London, you know, I was already aware of punk rock, you know, and I was definitely trying to start bands, uh, you know, I was going to see shows as early as I could. Um, and... You know, punk rock, as Alejandro Escovedo said to me, he said, punk rock really erased the line between the audience and the stage. Punk rock showed that anybody could do it. Anybody could pick up a guitar, anybody that had something to say, you know. Uh, so what made London Calling so great was that they showed what, you know, what was possible after you picked up that guitar. Yeah. And, and it's kind of a gateway drug for me uh for all kinds not only for all kinds of different music but also for the records that i have aspired to make you know mm -hmm. in, in the subsequent decades um but they just distilled everything that they had into this 200 proof um masterwork you know um and um that's really what makes me return to that record so much you know today it's really easy to make records people just crank out these mcnuggets on their laptops yeah but 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 london calling is one of those rare records where you can hear all the love and the care and the living yeah okay that went into a record like that so they had done a lot of living you know mick jones had been in a glam rock band and followed mata hoople around joe strummer was a you know woody guthrie acolyte and you know was very aware of bruce springsteen and mm -hmm. um you know uh had been in the the 101ers a pub rock band that played you know r&b and stuff and so you know this was the record where they finally were able to loosen up and and let all that stuff show you know yeah and i i mean this they're kind of steering away from the punk it's not it's not all punk here you know but i love no. I love the fact that like they, you know, Mick was like, um, hey, listen, I've got to have uh, Guy Stevens as my producer. And this guy's notorious for being an alcoholic, speed freak, but they just they they fucking had to have him. And so uh, Joe Strummer had to go to all the pubs where he was rumored to, to hang out and finally found him uh, looking much older. And the first thing that the guy said was, have a drink. And then Strummer sat down. He had a drink, and London Collins was off and running. Well, I think he had done those uh, early Mata Hoople records. Uh, Guy mm -hmm. Stevens did, and and uh, you know, like I said, it was somebody that maybe they trusted, you know, and 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 was somebody that wasn't going to tell him to stop. You know, I mean, they were doing, uh, you, you know, there's country music on that record. There's mm -hmm. disco music. There's top forty or whatever you want to call it. They they're, they're so confident and they're just such a cool band. They pull it all off. Yeah. You well, know? let's let's talk about the cover real quick and ask you another quiz question. You ready for this one? Who was on the cover of the record London Calling? Was it A. Paul Simonson, 
B, Joe Strummer, or C, Mick Jones? I think it was Paul Simonon with yes. his decision days. Yes, it was. Well, okay, quiz question number two for London Calling. Uh, what was the reason that Paul was demolishing his guitar? Was it A, he was fed up with Joe and Mick getting all the attention? Was it C, he was frustrated the bouncers would not let the audience stand up out of their seats? Or C, he always wanted a Gibson SG bass? None of the above. I don't know. It was B. Yeah, so basically <laughs> he explained in like an interview with Fender that he smashed the bass out of frustration. We learned the bouncers in concert wouldn't let the audience stand up. It wasn't taking out the bass guitar. It's nothing wrong with it, you know? But, uh, <laughs> and I love how like the artwork has got those kind of like Elvis titled, you know, pink letters down the side. And, yeah, you know, I, I, it just, it's like it, they, they took all of this stuff and mashed it into just such a masterpiece. And it, I just, I think it's brilliantly the way that they did the artwork. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were borrowing from all kinds of stuff, you know, you can hear that, you can hear that sort of, Bo Diddley goes to Jamaica mm -hmm. and Rudy can't fail. And then, you know, rockabilly with brand new Cadillac, which was a cover of a song. I think that, I think Molly the Hoople used to do that song. And there's all this kind of, um, impending doom of adulthood. You got alcoholism, yeah. you got, you know, um, unemployment and, and uh, uh, you know, it's all, and, and the fact that, that train in vain was a kind of a disco song. It's so mm -hmm. cool because the class were letting us know that they they knew what time it was. You want a song for the radio? Yeah, we could do that. Just like and I, I just love that confidence, you know, that they're not afraid of it, that they really weren't afraid of anything. Right. And, you know, that's what a band does. You know, I don't know if they did that when they went their own way. You know, it's a little harder when you go your own way. But when you have a band, you're like, come on, Joe, let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. Place, this place sucks. Yeah. Uh, Tom Carson, Rolling Stone said, um, the music celebrates the romance of rock and roll rebellion, adding that it's vast, it is vast, engaging, enduring enough to leave listeners, not just exhilarated, but exalted and triumphantly alive. Well, I, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to argue with that. And then this other guy, Gary Bichelle. It's a monster record, you know, I it's, agree. it's, 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 it, 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 it's a triumph, you know, and, and I like it that it's tender but at the same time, it's raging, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is. And, 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 you know, we can talk about how punk rock it is, but the melodies are there, you know? Yeah. And the way they play against each other, uh, Topper was such a great drummer. He was incredible. That, um, that uh, you know, it, it, it really swings all of this kind of like, you know, like this kind of swing in here, you know, this kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Don calling. You get those triplets kind of going across there. It's it's really um, just great playing, you know. Yeah. Uh, Sophisticated. There's, a, there's another guy, Gary Bushell, uh, who was a little bit more critical of the record. Oh, uh, please. Come on, Gary. Give it, give it what two do you out got? of five stars. I don't know who this guy is. Oh, come on. Two out of five stars claiming the Clash had retrogressed to Rolling Styles, outlaw imagery, and tired old rock cliches. Who the fuck is this guy, man? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I had an interesting time when Green on Red went to um, Japan. We had a night off, and um, 
the promoter said, hey, uh, the Pogues are playing. Uh, would you guys like to go see the Pogues? We said, oh, sure, that sounds great. You know, so so we went to this ballroom somewhere, this big room, and uh, I remember coming in the back door of the of the of the ballroom through these doors that we shut behind us, and then like we were just taller than everybody, <laughs> and 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 immediately the band could see us, right. Yeah, so they kind of waved at us. Hey, hey, come over here, you guys. And so we ended up going and sitting behind the monitor board. And um, there was a guy there that had a blender on a um, flight case. And he was um, making drinks, you know. And he's like, hey, man, here, have a drink. And then they, like, rolled that flight case out on the stage, had a bunch of drinks, and, and they all, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But Strummer was fronting the band at that time. Okay. And um, uh, later we all went to some club, you know, and they were showing punk rock, you know, some place in Tokyo, and they were, you know, at three in the morning, they were showing these movies on the wall, projecting, and, and Strummer was kind of narrating, like, ah, that's, uh, you know. and you know, and 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 the great part was, is I was sitting in a booth with him, and I got to ask him all the corny questions, you yeah. know, <laughs> I'm like, so like, where'd you get that Telecaster? And he's like, oh, I got a guitar, 1970, yeah, uh, yeah. Denmark, straight 150, 150 quid or whatever. And at a certain point, even the Pogues came around and they were like leaning over because, you know, they didn't even know this stuff. Right. <laughs> and I asked him about some songs and everything. And it was just it was just a great, great night, you know. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting um, that the Clash were kind of young and dumb at one time, but they were so ambitious, you know. Um, that they were able to uh, do this double album and uh, just go out on a limb with all these different kinds of music, and it, and it just it just worked, you know. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of Japan, um, I don't know if you. I was hanging out with like five other people on this Outlaw Country cruise, and one of them was Charles or Charlie Overby. You know him? Sure. I, I went to grammar you. school with Charlie. Did you really? Well, he wow. pointed that out to me, and now and he, know, he knew a bunch of names. He kind of freaked me out a little bit. Yeah, anyway, honestly. Yeah. Anyway, this whole group was like, "Hey, we're, we're all gonna get a tattoo." And I was like, Dude, "I don't have any tattoos. I'm not getting one." Charlie told me a story earlier, and he said, uh, "You know, I was in Japan, and I said I'm gonna get, get a tattoo because he's got them pretty much everywhere." So he went and got a tattoo. He told the guy, "He's like, hey, listen, I want something really like, like happy, blah blah blah." He came back, and the roadie was like, "Let me see your tattoo." And he said, "Why'd you get potato on your hand right here?" And so uh, that was my thing. I was like, okay, I'll get one, but it's got to say potato. So did you end up getting one? No, I did not. Because oh, okay. they, they all started laughing because they knew, they knew I wasn't going to get one. Yeah, nobody's going to get one that says potato. <laughs> Charlie did. <laughs> yeah. In Japanese. Yeah, I don't have any tattoos either. I, I, I don't have like any strong feelings. I don't have any strong feelings about it. I just I, never got around to it. I believe that if you want to get a tattoo, wait a year. And if you still want that exact same tattoo, go ahead. Go for it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm not, I don't, uh, you know, have any tattoos but one of these days. I, I was on tour with Amy Mann, and she said, hey, let's go out and get a tattoo, man. I want to get you a tattoo. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Mm. And she goes, what are you worried about, you know, what it's going to be like when you get old? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I, 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 go, I, I, I suppose. She goes, well, guess what? We are old. You know? <laughs> We're already there. What do you, you got to worry about? And she, uh, she has great, she has great tattoos. She has like a real classic, like anchor, you know, yeah. suits her. It suits her. Right. 
Okay, well, Chuck, we're kind of closing on time here. Um, where can people find you on the World Wide Web or interweb? Well, I have a website. I don't know how much longer. Um, my Twitter's been hacked. Uh, they, took, they took down my Instagram, so I started with zero followers. Uh, I don't know, man. I have a newsletter, a Substack newsletter, and uh, it will not waste your time. That would be the, probably be the best place to start. And uh, That's off your website? Yeah, and, and get in there, and then you can learn about uh, you know what we announced tour dates, which is probably the most important thing Agreed. You know, to, to keep people aware of beyond that you know there's uh lots of fun stuff to do on the internet so <laughs> yes there's but i i will say this though you know i've listened to your records i love them but your live show is is second to none so um oh I thank you man. i try to explain to people i say yeah you can go listen to them all you want but you got to get out there and you got to see them live because i mean you're an entertainer i feel like i'm, a, I'm an entertainer too when i'm on stage but you you're at a different level and you do well, a great job up there and i you should be commended on it well, thank you. Yeah, I like people to have a good time. I, I, you know, it's 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 so hard to get the mu get music out there. You know, you can't just assume that everybody has lived with your records and right. You know, I almost feel like if we're doing our job as a band, nobody really needs an owner's manual to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, okay. So, anything that you want to promote today at all? Not really. Okay. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, everybody go check out Chuck on his website. Um, hopefully he'll get his Twitter back run, up and running and Instagram. Yeah, sign up for the newsletter. That's really the best place. You know, I, I, I won't hit you more than once a month or so, and, and yeah, you know, I'll, res yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll respect your privacy. I'm not going to give your email to any, uh, I don't know, political organizations. <laughs> <laughs> Start getting spammy texts and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Move well, on. Move on yeah. org or whoever. Nobody, nothing. I'm just right. just me, man. Got no writers. I unlike, you know, Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan and all these guys. You know, I don't have people writing <laughs> writing your stuff right for your social <laughs> stuff. All right. Yeah. I have uh my band, it's like I always get like after every show, it's like it's like you guys are so much fun. I had some of you fun, fun, fun. That's so why I was like, I gotta come up with a tagline. So now it's bring grandma, she'll have a blast. Lock so. up your grandmas. For my, my guys, my guys are so sexy. They're so sexy. You better lock up your grandmas. Yeah, you know, lock up your. You don't grandmas. want those grandmas waking up pregnant with little twin Chucky peas. <laughs> All right. Well, hey Chuck, thank you for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I, I. This was a, a, an honor to, to talk to you for this long. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad that we could finally schedule it, and and I appreciate your tenacity. Well, and, uh, I'm a fan of what you're doing, so thanks for including me. Yeah. All right. Well, Chuck, thanks again, bud. Peace. All right. Um, that was awesome. Love, 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 Chuck. Um, loved, loved how he said um, how Dusty Springfield comes in and, and dustifies things, and then how uh, Alejandro Escobedo told him that uh, punk basically erased the line between the audience and the stage. Now I got to go back and listen to Green on Red, his first band, because I haven't yet, um, and go watch these dang uh, documentaries on Dusty Springfield and Jim Dickinson. You can find Chuck on the good old interweb at chuckprofit.com. Sign up for his newsletter, see where he's playing. He's got a bunch of information up there. And if you're digging on what we're laying down right here, please give us a review. Um, you can find us pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. Let's just give a star for each one of your top five records. Yeah, that's five stars. Uh, it would be super, super appreciated. There's a link in the show notes. 
And again, it takes me a lot of time to listen, record, edit, podcast, all this stuff. And if you can even spare a dollar, just head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash my top five records and uh, do what you can. Lastly, if you got the gumption, you can head over to see what my band is up to at thebiggunshow.com. Uh, handles for all the, the Insta, Facebook, YouTube, all that stuff is The Big Gun Show Band. Again, the beginning band at the end. And our most consistent gig here in Austin is our monthly residency at the Little Longhorn Saloon, uh, home of Chicken Chip Bingo. Uh, we play the happy hour on the first Friday of every month. I recommend bringing Grandma because she'll have a blast. Close your eyes. You're headed from the kitchen to the living room. What five records do you have? Till next time. Yeah.